Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your love, for the gift of your life, for the hope which you've given us in Jesus Christ. Might we in this time be undistracted in our preoccupation with him. Might we grow in the grace and knowledge of your son Jesus Christ, being conformed to his image, be so much the more able to show his life and his love to a world in desperate need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so I want you to think about for a moment, when you think about faith and confidence, you can think about an airplane, right? How many of us are nervous flyers? And how many of us are very, you're a nervous flyer, okay? Some very confident flyers. Is that everybody else? Everyone else was very good on the airplane. See, I always figure that if the plane is going down, that's not that bad a way to go. Like in the end, you get, you're in the paper, you kind of get to go down and get enough warning, you know, scrawl something on the back of the seat in front of you, like, you know, tell my dog I loved him, something, you know. But anyway, it doesn't, it's interesting because you get on the plane because you have at least a certain degree of faith that that plane is not going to kill you. Like if, if half of the planes in the world that went up came down in a crash, you'd probably be very slow to get on one, right? So some of us are, are very nervous when we get on a plane, and some of us are going to be very, very confident we get on a plane. But the funny thing is, is that it doesn't matter how confident anyone is, your faith doesn't keep the plane in the air. However, your faith or willingness to trust in that plane is the difference between a wonderful, calm, and relaxing flight and a flight of absolute misery. The plane is going to arrive at its destination regardless of whether or not you're a nervous wreck or whether you're able to sleep through the whole flight, right? Just like you get seated next to that one person who's terrified and they're a nervous talker. And you know it's going to be the second worst flight next to the time you're next to the baby, right? So... <clears throat> What I want to point out here is very similar to this. When you put your faith in Christ, you were committed by him unto a destiny, and he will bring you to that destiny, that conformity with the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God will do that. However, our ability to trust in him and trust in him as we go through that process, it doesn't affect the destination. It affects the quality of the flight or the quality of our lives. So I want you to open up with that idea, that illustration in mind as we move on. And we're talking about finding our confidence in our identification. So keeping, us, uh, keeping in mind where we've been so far, we looked at our previous position. We saw that our position before God was at the very least an unattractive one, right? We found out that it, we were positioned in Adam, and in Adam all have a destiny. The plane of Adam, of being positioned in Adam, is headed towards death, not towards annihilation, but headed towards eternity apart from God, and all in Adam will die. Um, John 8, 24, Jesus spoke and said, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. As an unbeliever, as someone who doesn't know Jesus, God looks at you and he has to see you as identified with your sins. So we see that you have a destiny to die apart from Christ. We have a, um, an identification. We're identified with the things, the uh, unlawful, unrighteous, ungodly things that we have done. And we see that we were being dead in our trespasses, or sorry, Colossians 2.13a says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Again, we were dead in and identified with all of our unrighteousness, all of our godly, ungodliness, and we're set towards that destiny. But as we saw last week, 
God has given us a new position. And that new position is in Christ Jesus, his son. If you ever want to have just a wonderful night of Bible study and you have some sort of, uh, especially if you have something you can just type in like on the internet, on Blue Letter Bible, type in the phrase in Christ or in Christ Jesus and see how many times that phrase appears in the New Testament. And I want you to give, that, give you a visual for that exact picture. It's the identity you have in Christ moving from Adam is like that paper in the book. We won't go over the whole illustration again, but it's simply put that once you put a paper in a, uh, put that piece of paper in this Bible, then that paper and its destiny are forever tied to this book whether it burns or whether it soaks, whether it lasts a thousand years here on this stand, it's immaterial. Whatever happens to the book is gonna happen to the piece of paper. And that is a great illustration of what happened to you the moment you believed in Christ. You can say, I have good days, I have bad days. I, I have ups and downs. I, 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 I walk with Christ, I feel very great about it for three weeks and then I, I fall apart and I don't, I don't feel it, but it doesn't matter. Because nothing changes that eternal position. It's not that it doesn't matter in terms of day-to-day uh, -day life, that it's not important, but it doesn't affect your eternal position in Christ. And so, last week, we looked at one first aspect of that, um, that identification. We saw that you're identified with Christ at the cross, or as Paul said, you're cru uh, we are crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, Christ lives in me. So we saw that you are dead. When, you, when Jesus Christ was crucified on that cross, you were crucified with him. From God's perspective, the moment you placed your faith in Christ, you were spiritually accounted to be on that cross with Jesus Christ. And at that time, you died to some things. Remember, we saw that death was separation. You are dead to your sin nature. And you say, if I'm dead to my sin nature, why does it still bug me so much? Right? But it's because the sin nature, the flesh, fools us or we allow ourselves to be fooled or deceived into thinking that the sin nature is either in charge still, which it's not, or into thinking that it's going to pay some dividend, that we need to walk in the, uh, the sin nature. However, as we grow in Christ, coming to understand our identification with him, we find that we're dead to that sin nature and we never need to listen to it again. We're finally uh, growing in our ability to tune out, if you like, the, uh, the dictates, the demands, and the desires of the sin nature. But not just that, you're dead to the principle of law. That system whereby, by achievement and reward and punishment, we manage our conduct, we were freed from that system. We were now united to our life in Christ. And now we're led not by the law, but by the Spirit. And so many Christians go through that Romans 7 life for most, if not all, of their Christian life just trying to do a little bit better than yesterday, trying a little bit harder instead of abiding in the reality that we were never meant to live up to a law standard. We were meant to live up to the character of Christ, which we can only do by the Spirit of God. And so... We find that we often and continually fail because whenever we get in the law realm, we wind up a slave to our sin nature. Simply put, we can never best our sin nature by trying to keep a set of rules. Be that five rules, ten rules, or 613 commandments. Anytime you step on the court, or as Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, sin shall not be your master because you're not under law. 
You're now under grace. This new system of grace is an entirely different issue from what you once knew. But finally, or not finally, moving on, you're also dead to or separated from the deception of this world's system. You're separated from the lies of this world that tell you what is valuable, what is important, what is good, what is bad, what's right, what is wrong, what's the crisis, what do you need to worry about, what do you need to earn, what makes you valuable or important. All of those things are the lies of this world system, and while we can still choose to respond to them, we find that we are freed from that deception forever in Christ. And as you let the word of God reprogram your view of everything, as you let the word of God be the LASIK surgery on the sadly sin-fragmented corneas that we've been uh, given, we find that we won't see the world in deception or delusion any longer. And finally, you're dead to or separated from the delusion of Satan. Satan, we can choose to be deceived by Satan. We can choose to listen to uh, the satanic world system and, and, and Satan's lies. But ultimately, we are free from that. We're able to live and walk in our new identification in Christ and no longer be a slave, a servant, or a victim of his lying ways. Ultimately, as we ended last week, you are alive to God in Christ. You are. That is a statement of your exact position if you have trusted in Jesus Christ today. So if we're going to put this visually, you are identified with Christ in these five things, Scripture tells you, in his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his seating. We spent all of last week talking about your shared identification in his crucifixion that you were crucified with Christ, that at that cross you're dead to your sin nature, you're dead to your past, you're dead to all that you once were, and now what we're going to study is how you're identified with him in his burial and what that means, his resurrection and what that means to you, his ascension and what that means, and finally, his seating. Today, we're going to look at all four of those things with a view, as with all this study, to why does that mean that you can live in this world with the utmost confidence. So, let's start at the very beginning, which I'm told is a very good place to start. We are going to start with uh, the fact that Jesus was buried. Let's look at that. Now, I want to remind you that these are all historical events. These aren't just uh, fables and stories. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, actually took on human flesh. He identified with us in our need. He physically died on that cross. He was physically buried. And it was recorded by four separate uh, witnesses, four separate group uh, people, the, the four gospel writers, as a historical fact. Not one of them gave even the slightest intimation that these were anything but true historical events. That's right. That is the crux of our faith, is that God stepped down into human history to correct what had gone wrong, what we had done wrong in this world. And so let's read about that historical fact of the burial of Christ. It says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. 
Now, when you think about uh, first century burial customs this day, you remember Jesus' body would have been absolutely emaciated, probably unrecognizable, even potentially as a human. You might look at that mutilated pile of human flesh and wonder, was it really a person or was it something else? And you can only imagine the pain and the sorrow and the grief of those disciples and friends, his own mother, who had to take him down and wrap his body. He would have been anointed and wrapped, anointed with oil and wrapped up probably quickly because the Sabbath was coming and then placed away in this rich man's tomb. The custom of the time was to place human bodies into uh, stone tombs, hewn out stone tombs, and then after a year, you'd come back and all of the, uh, the soft parts, the flesh would have rotted away, and you'd collect the bones into a box, and then that tomb could be used yet again. So this custom was taking place, and we can only imagine the pain of Mary Magdalene, Mary, and the others as it went on. And you were there. When you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were identified. You don't have a memory of this. This is the author of truth who declares it to be so by his sovereign word that you were buried with him in baptism. We saw that baptism in this context is not referring to water baptism, but referring to our immersion in Christ by faith. We've been identified with him. We're buried with him in baptism Romans 6, our passage from last week, also highlights this in 4. It says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Right? We were buried with him. So we ask the question, what does it mean to be buried with Christ? Well, first and foremost, Christ's death is sure. The payment was complete. If anybody wanted that mutilated body to be alive, to have even the faintest breath, it would have been those loving disciples, those those loving and caring women who took him down, they would have been looking for even the scantest sign of a breath. And it would have been just as anyone who's lost someone and sat next to a person as the life departs them, you just pray with everything in you that they'd take one more breath. And undoubtedly, that's exactly what it was like for these women. When they placed Jesus in that tomb, they would only have done it because they were absolutely sure that his death was final, complete. And what that means for us is that our payment is complete. That Jesus didn't just suffer for us in his, in his identification with us and our identification with him. He drank that cup of bitterness all the way to the dregs. The payment was complete, and that means that the miracle of the resurrection is all the more miraculous and important. It wasn't just a, a swoon. It was the absolute reality that he took our payment, our punishment, all the way to his last breath. It shows us the final nature of the judgment of sin at the cross. You see, when Satan would come to accuse you before the Father for whatever unrighteous deed, whatever act of faithlessness or failure, Jesus can point him and the God of the universe, the only righteous and wise judge, will point him back to the moment in time when the Son of God took his final breath and his body was laid in the tomb. You were buried with Christ, and in so doing, the penalty and power of sin was forever removed from you. 
You're identified in that constantly. Again, your good days and your bad days. You will be identified with him on the day that you get a new job, on the day that you get married. You'll be identified with him on the day that you lose that which you love most. You'll be identified with him as you descend into your own physical death or whether he comes to get us. You will never be unidentified with Jesus Christ. It is final, it is full, and you're with him, identified with him forever. And so with that, we move on to the fact that you weren't just buried with him. You're, that moment that we would celebrate is the moment when we were forever cut off from our life before, when we were cut off from and can celebrate our total death to and removal from that, all the forces of evil and all the forces of darkness. Now we find we are raised with him. Uh, Ephesians 2.6 says, And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2.12, We're buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Notice what's going on here. You were buried with him in your immersion into Christ, you were raised with him through what? Through faith. When you trusted in Jesus Christ, when you exercised faith in him, this was a once and for all completed past action that will affect you for all of eternity through faith alone in Christ alone. And it is the working of God. For you to undo this, you would have to be able to overpower and undo the complete and final working of God who raised him from the dead. We love to, uh, to, to watch stories about the idea of someone comes back to the dead, right? Our favorite zombie movies maybe are most exciting. Nope, I'm getting a sneer on zombie movies. Frankenstein, anybody? The idea that you could, you could sew and get all the parts sewn together and then somehow pass electricity and then you'd get a, a walking automaton, a zombie of some kind or something like that. For all of our best imagination, for all of the amazing uh, advances of science, one thing that we've never been able to do is truly bring a person back from the dead. Sure, a few seconds, a short time, and usually then, I believe, by a miracle of God and a lot of luck from the scientific standpoint. But God was able to raise Christ from the dead. So that miracle, which no uh, medical professional, no team of scientists could manage to pull off, God did in raising Christ from the dead. And you were with him. Ephesians 2, 6a, and he raised us up together as we've seen. Oops. So you are raised with him. Jesus conquered death, and every believer is identified with him. You notice what death is? Death is the worst that this world has to offer. You noticed? That's, that's all that we can do. There's a, a story that uh, my mentor, Vern, used to tell about a missionary who was confronted with these, these folks who didn't want him preaching the gospel anymore. So they got him across the table, and they said, Why, don't you know that we can kill you? And he said, yeah, that's all that you can do. 
Death is the worst punishment that we can come across. It's the worst tragedy that we face in most circumstances. And yet the worst thing that the world has to offer to anyone who's in Christ is no longer of any threat to us. Because you are identified in the one who conquered death, who conquered the grave. So we come back to our verse Romans 6, 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism unto death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. 1 Peter uh, 2.24 likewise says, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. So we have to ask ourselves, now we've been told not only are we dead to sins, but we've also been raised, and we've been raised to this new thing, this new thing called uh, newness of life, or here, living for righteousness. So I want you to ask yourself, just pause for a minute. We've only ever known, right, this, this normal, physical, natural life. If you could take yourself back to the moment where you place, or before you place faith in Christ. All you ever knew is the natural workings of life. So we might ask, what is the quality of this resurrection life? The quality of resurrection life is a life undying. It is a life that is completely free from the shame and the taint and the sorrow that is attached to sin. The resurrection life that you enjoy now, not that you will enjoy later sometime if you're lucky, but that every believer is meant to walk in and appreciate every moment of time is a quality of eternity. This resurrection life is a moment-by-moment connection to God. You have a bad day, you fall down, you fail, you goof up, you are still have access to this resurrection, this quality of life because of the source of that life. You see, the source of the Christian's life is in the Christian's identification in Christ. You can take a, a lamp and turn it on and turn it on and turn it on or try to turn it on and it'll never go on, right? Has anybody else ever done this? In the middle of the night, you just try to turn it on? It's never going to work until you do what? Until you plug it in. It's, the, the, the lamp is useless apart from the power source. The Christian is hopeless apart from being plugged into, abiding in the Messiah in whom we are identified. And here's the thing. You're always plugged in. You're always identified with him. He is the source of resurrection life, and that resurrection life is never running out. You're never going to forfeit your right to it. You're never going to lose access to it. It's never going to fall away from you, and you're never going to fall away from him. That resurrection life is permanent and trustworthy and reliable because he who gave it to you is faithful and true. So all that's left is the question, will we live? the resurrection life. How do we access it? We access it by moment, by moment, mindfulness or attentiveness to what God has given us in Christ Jesus. 
When your eyes are on Christ, you are plugged into his life. When you are walking by means of the Spirit, when you're in fellowship with him, you are plugged into the resurrection life. And I know you know this experience if you're a believer today. You had those moments, those days when you're so close and you can just, you, you can't feel far from God. And then we get into those other less attractive days. We get distracted. We start to look at our own situation. We start to look at our own failures. We start to think about what we, or how the world views us instead of how Christ views us. And we start to muss and fuss and fuddle and worry about what we might be missing. But the resurrection life of Christ is always available to us if our eyes are fixed on him. So what does resurrection life have to do with confidence? You see, we don't take advantage of Christ's wonderful gift of moment-by-moment -moment life when we try to meet our own needs, when we try to find other ways, worldly ways, to find satisfaction in stuff or things, appetites, behaviors, relationships, or anything apart from God. And yet, as we grow and continue to grow and understand what God has given us permanently, we recognize that the only thing of true eternal importance can never be taken away from us. It doesn't matter how bad your financial situation gets. It doesn't matter how quickly or slowly your health goes. It doesn't matter what else, ever else the world might take away from us, whether we're in persecution or duress, whether our relationships seem to have abandoned us and left us entirely on our own, you have access, constant, permanent access to the resurrection life of, of Jesus Christ. And that is a key, the key to living in confidence, knowing that you can lose everything here. And you will you'll be better off than you ever were before. Because it will draw you closer to the recognition and the realization that all you ever had was Jesus. And it was only foolishness that ever made us want to want anymore or think to want anymore. We move on to Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11. Yet another historical event. It says, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up. He, Jesus, was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This is the historical fact of the ascension. Every bit as much as Peter and John and, and, uh, the, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary watched him, his own mother watched him die upon the cross as they laid him in the tomb, as he stayed there for three days, as he was resurrected on the third day. Every bit as much as they ate with him and talked with him and affirmed his physical reality, this was a historical event that burned its way into the apostles' memory as he finished his final words to them and ascended, was raised up, took flight into the air, and was covered by a cloud while they marveled 
waiting for him to come immediately back. Until an angel came and said, whoa, guys, what are you doing? Standing up, gazing into heaven, that same Jesus who is taken up, to you from, uh, taken up from you into heaven will come down in like manner, just as you saw him go. Can you imagine that moment for a minute? Will you be there and stand there with those disciples? What an amazing set of days it has been for them to be taught by the risen Lord, to be overcome by the reality of what they had never even dared to hope for or expect on the night of his crucifixion, and now to be seeing that man, that very God revealed unto you, raised up into heaven. Can you be there with them at that moment? Well, Scripture says you were, though not sitting with the disciples. It says, but God, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice something about this text. Okay? First of all, that word together, continually. Raised, made alive, together, raised up, together. It's, a, it's actually a Greek prefix, soon, as we pronounce it or we anglicize it or transliterate it, S-U-N. Soon, it means together, and it's attached to this word. So it's uh, together alive, together raised, together seated. It's the, the picture of identification is, and intimacy is clear, but what I want you to notice most of all is that each of these verbs are rightly translated as past tense, completed actions. He doesn't say, and if you're really good, you'll be raised up. He doesn't say, if you keep, keep on keeping on, you'll be ascended with him. He doesn't say that you can hope one day to sit on high. He says that that is the spiritual state of affairs, whether you're able to recognize it or not. We know there's an entire spiritual, unseen world moving around, changing, affecting life on this planet. There's an angelic war that is going on while we speak that affects states of affairs as they are, but not for you. Because you are already seated at the right hand of the Father. If you could see yourself with spiritual eyes, if you could blink for a moment and be fully conscious of the reality that the, world reveal, the word of God reveals to you, you would realize that you are seated in the throne room of heaven. That is the spiritual reality that exists behind this. It is stated as a fact in Scripture, not wishful thinking, not hope, but as an absolute reality, not because you've earned it, not because you deserved it, but because of the matchless grace of God that made it available to you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so here you are, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and I ask you, who can throw a rock far enough to reach you there? Who can shoot a gun into heaven? and strike you down from that position? Who can make an accusation so great that it would reach to your position in the heavenly throne room? 
wherein you're positioned in the one who paid the penalty to put you there, to give you the right to be there, wherein the very judge who declared that righteous sacrifice complete stands and guards your possession and inheritance for all eternity, at what risk do you ever live? None. Your spiritual position is eternally settled and you are there whether you feel like it or not, whether you notice it or not, whether you choose to live in light of that spiritual fact or ignore it completely. And that's the greatest tragedy of the Christian life is that so many people have been given such a great inheritance. Every believer has been given such a great gift and a position. And we walk around like paupers, begging, looking for the next little spiritual provision, the next pick-me-up, the next distraction. We're all familiar with the story, the prince and the pauper, right? Prince and the pauper, they look the same, and so they change places for a day. If I was the pauper, I'm like going, sweet, done deal. We're never going back. This is good. And yet, oftentimes we live as that spiritual pauper, as if God has not given us everything that we need for life and godliness in his son, but he has. It's not a question of whether he's willing to give what we need to live each day in his son, Jesus Christ. It's a question of whether we're willing to show the wisdom to ask him and receive what he has already given. Will we utilize the spiritual resources, the position in which he's placed us? Will we view our lives with the confidence that what he said is true? Or will we accept the deceptions and lies of this world? Will we let what we see distract us from the ultimate spiritual truth that has been revealed to us through Christ and his word? Colossians 3, 1-4 says, <clears throat> If then... You were raised with Christ. Now that if is a first-class conditional, but it doesn't matter. A first-class conditional means that it's assumed to be true by the author. But it doesn't matter because just before that in Colossians chapter 2, he'd said you are raised with Christ. It is a spiritual fact. So this isn't an if and you might not be. This is an if and it's true. If you were raised with Christ, and you were, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. On that day, around 33 AD, Jesus Christ our Lord was raised up from the earth, translated into the heavenlies, seated on his Father's throne. And you are right there with him. That is the spiritual reality that we would never know had God not revealed it to us, but he did. Because he wants us to live in constant, moment-by-moment awareness of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. You're seated at the right hand of God. And so we're told, set your mind on things above. How do you access this resurrection life? Be occupied with what's above. 
Do you have the moment? Do you have the time? Pray. Be in regular contact and talking to your Father in heaven who's made himself available to you 24 hours a day. When you pray, he hears you real time. He doesn't take messages and have his secretary call you back. He hears you that moment. So set your focus on him. Take your Bible and read it. Learn about the character of the one in whom you're positioned. Study. Occupy your mind with those things above. Find out about the character and culture of heaven. There's only one place where you can find that information, and it's in the Word of God. Set your mind on it. Occupy yourself with your position in Christ, with the character of the God who loved you and saved you, with his righteous and holy standard. And every time, set your mind nothing else is worthy of your attention 24 hours a day because you've died to this world. It's history to you, ancient history. And whether out of deception, faithlessness, fear, or just plain inattentive boredom, we'll go and flirt and play with the things that were only ever death to us. But your life is hidden away with Christ in God. That's where your life is. You're there spiritually now. And every moment in which you're not distracted from him is a moment when you will be enjoying that resurrection life, when you'll realize that this world has nothing to offer you and nothing it can take from you. You realize that all of the temptations of the flesh are nothing more than the rattlings of a hideous waste in light of the true love which the Father has lavished upon us in Christ. And there's a future to this hope. Because when Christ, who is our life, appears, when he rips through this atmosphere, when he kicks in the back door of this universe, you will appear with him. First comes the rapture. He comes, you receive a new body like unto his, a spiritual body. You're rewarded for those things which Christ was able to do in the flesh. You're prepared and mounted, and you will be with him as he rips through this world and brings down his judgment and redemption. And you will appear with him in glory. Your future is not to die alone in a bed. That's just a small moment in your future. Your future is to return to this planet with the glory of Christ in everything. So, this is your new life story. Your identification with Christ affects the first big question to living with confidence. And that's, who am I? See, even after all this, If I were to ask you, who are you? You'd answer it the way we always do. Well, this is my job, or this was my job, and this is how much much I'm worth. These are my talents. This is what I'm good at. I'm funny. I'm smart. I'm cute. I'm beautiful. I'm what? Garbage. You are 
permanently placed and positioned in the Son of God. That's who you are. When the angels and all of the majesties of the world, when Satan himself looks upon you, he shudders for the fact that you are placed in the Son of God. That's who you are. Everything else is just details. And so you can live with confidence Because it doesn't matter what this world's assessment of you is, and it doesn't matter what your assessment of yourself is, and it doesn't matter what your mom or your dad thought of you, it only matters what God has declared to be so of you, and that is your permanent position in his son. And so you can live with confidence in any situation, because the only person whose opinion matters has been registered and settled and is finally in. And you're in Christ Jesus. Our next study, we're going to talk about our next major question. What are your resources? What do you have to work with? What does it mean to live in this life? But I want to let us meditate very briefly on these final or these words by Corey Tin Boom. She said, if you look at the world, you'll be uh, distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. Might we be at rest? this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for this position. There's nothing in us that is even the slightest reason to have confidence. But we are confident in you. We are confident in your Son. We're confident in you, our loving Creator, who reached down into the pit and the depths of our sin and our hopelessness. And by your mighty hand and the life of your Son, you redeemed us and made us, no, remade us, to be that which we were always made to be. new people, new creations in and always united with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and seating at the right hand of the Father. Oh, give us wisdom, Lord, that we might set our minds on those things above today and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.